Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So good afternoon and uh, welcome to this uh, Green Innovation Forum. Uh, my name is Paul Linden uh, and uh, I'm moderating this uh, event this afternoon. This is the third uh, of these uh, fora uh, for this academic year in which we're focusing on water and the topic today is water for energy and energy for water. Uh, and we have a distinguished lineup who I'll introduce in a minute. But before I do so, I want to say a couple of things uh, in welcome. One is to just say that uh, this year, 2009, has already brought um, some significant changes both uh, nationally uh, and on the UC campus. And in particular, uh, the Environment Sustainability Initiative that uh, uh, was hosting uh, this series uh, is transforming into the Sustainability Solutions Institute, uh, which I will uh, direct uh, and be ably supported by two deputy directors, Vish Krishnan from the Reddy School of Management and Ralph Keeling from Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And Lisa Schaefer uh, will be our executive director and Charlie Kennel will continue uh, as our senior strategist. Uh, so we have a very impressive team, I believe, and our role is to uh, promote and develop interdisciplinary solutions to environmental problems, bringing together the expertise from the campus uh, and from the surrounding community, but also, we hope, uh, from far further afield uh, to address important environmental problems uh, and to try and provide the integration between the sciences and engineering and uh, policy and social sciences arts and humanities to get holistic solutions to some of the problems that we face uh, in society. So you'll be seeing the new logo SSI replacing ESI. I hope it's not too confusing uh, over the coming months, uh, but uh, we're now in this new phase, which I think is really a, a major development for the campus. Anyway, I'm very pleased to see you all here. This is a record crowd, so uh, thank you very much all for coming. And it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, who is uh, Professor Julian Schroeder. Uh, Julian is the Novartis uh, Professor uh, of Plant Sciences here at uh, UC San Diego. He's a very distinguished uh, scientist, uh, receiving his PhD from the Max Planck Institute and the University of Göttingen in Germany. And uh, I'm going to let you read the rest of his biography and get him to come and speak to us. So, Julian, please. Thank you very much, Paul, and uh, thank you all, uh, all very much for coming. So uh, uh, my talk today on water is going to be looking into the future, and uh, I want to talk about uh, engineering drought tolerance in plants. Are we there? What is the future? What are the possibilities? And of course, the globe is covered uh, to 70% with water, but that's saline, ocean water, salt water. And for, to sustain life on Earth, we need fresh water. And of course, fresh water is a big issue. And uh, in addition to this, we're also looking at changes in precipitation due to climate change. And of course, uh, one of the issues we're dealing with is 
if we uh, if we have increased desert desertification in in the tropical in the equatorial regions, this particularly in the southern hemisphere, we see how the the land availability is narrowing. So, uh, what is the relevance of fresh water to humans? And uh, so, let's take a look at. Uh, people affected by water scarcity on the planet. In 1995, about 500 million people were living under conditions of water scarcity or water stress. And it's interesting that in 1995, the same number, 500 million people, lived under conditions of undernourishment, undernourished or malnourished. And this number is uh, predicted to increase in large part due to population growth, but also due to increase in, uh, in uh, the quality of life of many people, as well as uh, um, also climate change. And already last year, the estimated number of people on the planet living under undernourished or malnourished conditions was about 950 million, so approximately double. So this predicted trend here is already happening to, to a degree. So uh, why do we need water? What does what does human society use water for? And that's shown here. For the last 100 years, you can see the global increase in freshwater use. Uh, what do we use most of our water for? For agriculture, globally, that's about two-thirds. And uh, in arid regions of the world, that percentage of water use for agriculture is more on the level of 80 or 90%. So uh, a lot of this water is used for agriculture. And of course, if we don't use it, uh, these are the results. Uh, we have drought-stressed plants and drought-stressed fields. Uh, this is not just an issue of um, feeding the world. It's also an economic issue. And as we can see in this slide, this slide summarizes economic impacts of a drought in 1998 in Texas. And alone in Texas, the estimated economic losses from that drought uh, were for production losses over $2 billion. And in terms of statewide economic impact, because as you know, this is not just a matter of crop production, but also distribution selling, and so it was about $5.7 billion. That's just one state and one drought. Um, so this is, of course, uh, 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 very important, and uh, that leads us to the question, where do we go from here? And... Uh, <laughs> The answer, of course, is that uh, many things have to be done in parallel, and I will be addressing one of these subjects today, namely, can we engineer plants to be more efficient? What are the type of technologies that are going to be used in the future? And sometimes I feel like it's more like this. Uh, but uh, so let's take a look at the past for a second. So. Agricultural technology has improved a lot over the last 60 years. And this is roughly the amount of area relative to the whole United States used today in agriculture. Of course, it doesn't focus on Nevada, but this is the amount of land used. If we had had no technological improvements since 1930 or so, for the same agricultural production that we put out today, we would have needed this much land. So we've had a huge improvement in land-efficient use, and that also involves water-efficient use. And this might also be very relevant for the future. If we look into the future, this is uh, from a study of John Boyer that was published in Science. And what uh, John Boyer estimates 
is that the actual yield from crops that we're looking at today is about 21% of what it could be under optimal conditions. And, of co- and he estimates that a large part of these losses come from environmental stresses, 69% here. And that's uh, due to uh, factors like drought, salinity, heat, pathogens, uh, ozone, and so on. So the question for the future is, can we increase this margin? At the same time, we have climate change, and that's pushing towards decreasing this. So we have a, uh, there's, there's a huge potential for improvement, but there's also work in terms of holding the line. Um, so why is it that, we, that plants need so much water? Why is that? Where, where does this water go? What is it used for? Of course, all life needs water. But uh, the reason that plants need very much water is because they lose a lot of water while they're breathing in, while they're taking in carbon dioxide, CO2, from the atmosphere. Plants have little microscopic breathing pores in their surface called stomata or stomatal pores. And these pores are used to breathe in, to take in the carbon dioxide for photosynthesis. Plants fix the carbon and build all the nutrients and cell walls that we need At the same time, they produce oxygen, but water evaporates through these pores, and plants lose about 95% of their water by evaporation. And if we look at these pores under a microscope, so if we look at this leaf here under a microscope, this is what the stomatal breathing pores look like. They're microscopic. Diameter of this pore is maybe 10 microns. That's one two thousand five hundredths of an inch. So they're very small. They're surrounded by two cells called guard cells. And fortunately, plants can open or close these pores. Now, uh, under drought stress, plants produce a hormone that I'll be talking about a little bit today called abscisic acid, or ABA in short. And this is the drought stress hormone. This is the hormone that allows plants to survive under drought stress. And so under drought stress, ABA would close the stomatal pores. However, as you might imagine, many plants are not very good at closing their stomatal pores. They've been, and uh, they, uh, you know, you might forget to grow some plants, they get very wilty. Some plants have a very weak response, don't close their stomatal pores very well. And uh, so in my research, in my laboratory, we're interested in the signaling pathway, how this hormone, ABA, triggers the closing of the stomatal pores. I'm going to shift for a second and tell you a little bit about my own background and how I got into this field. I was working in a laboratory, uh, in, a neurosci- in a neurobiological, biophysical laboratory, looking at ion channels. And I was working with uh, my advisor here, Erwin Nair, and this is his colleague, Bert Sackmann. So yeah, that's Bert and that's Erwin. And, uh, and Erwin Nair and Bert Sackmann developed a revolutionary technique that revolutionized the understanding of neurological electrical signaling. And they received the Nobel Prize in Medicine for their work. And while I was in their lab, or in Irwin's lab, we decided we wanted to ask if these kind of electrical impulses exist in plants. And it opened up a Pandora's box of understanding how plant signaling works. So that's how I got into this field. So one of the things we learned in the guard cells that surround the stomatal pores is that ABA closes these pores by activation and regulation of various proteins in the membrane that actually transmit electrical signals. I won't go into the details, 
But this model shown here is used by my lab and a number of labs around the world to understand the genes and the mechanisms that act between the hormone ABA and the closing of the stomatal pores. There are many steps in this pathway. And uh, what we are learning from this work is that there are not only transmitters of the signal, but also negative regulators or breaks on the pathway. So some time ago, we were able to use this knowledge to show a first mutant that's more drought tolerant. We use a lab plant called Arabidopsis uh, because it's very amenable to genetic and uh, research, the genome is sequenced, and so on and so forth. And this is an example from this initial study. We here are showing plants that haven't been watered for 26 days. And what you can see on the left, the wild-type plant, the control plant, these leaves at the bottom of the plant, at the base called rosette leaves, are wilted and shriveled, while in our mutant plant, the plant retains water more effectively because this mutation amplifies the signaling by the hormone and we get an enhanced drought response. There is a small biotechnology company that has taken this knowledge on and to test the, the efficiency of this particular gene for engineering drought tolerance in the related brassica species, and they're at least reporting that they're seeing increased drought tolerance in the field, but that's ongoing work. Now, when we originally published this gene, as I say, I believe it was the first one such gene, so I got phone calls from the press but also from individuals saying, you know, I have these plants out here, and I think something is wrong with their ERA1 gene. And can you give me some advice? And my answer was, I believe there are probably many different such genes that could be manipulated, and this is only one. And usually that led to, oh, really? Okay. So uh, we have identified, and also others have since identified other genes. This is another example from my laboratory these plants weren't watered for only about 12 days, and if you look closely in the wild type, you might see how the leaves are wilty and drooping, while in the mutant they are better at retaining water, and the plant cells are more turgid, is the term that we use. So this is all very good, but really what our research is showing is that the signal transduction for stress is a complex network of mechanisms and genes, like this subway path here. And so there are many genes on the, on the, uh, in the network that function in transmitting the signal. Not only are there many genes that transmit the signal, but there are ne many breaks in the pathway, negative regulators that slow down the signaling of the hormone. And the examples I just showed you was simply genes that we took away, single genes we took out of the plant, we removed a break here or there, and we were able to amplify the signaling. Um, but apart from this, uh, there are there's much more to be learned. And so in a biological sense, what we're looking at is drought causes the hormone ABA to be produced. There must be receptors, and that sets off a signaling network, which then sets off events of, of gene expression and metabolic events, which then give you drought tolerance as a whole. Now, an important gene and mechanism in this, at the top of the pyramid of this drought signaling, are the receptors for ABA. Interestingly, they have not been known. That is, there were a few reports, but apparently the true receptors are unknown. And in recent research in my laboratory, we've used a so-called proteomics approach to identify a protein family that acts very early in signaling 
and research of a colleague at UC Riverside using a chemical genetics approach, Sean Cutler, has identified the same proteins and the data is very strong that we have the ABA receptors. So that means in the next few months, hopefully there will be a publication and the top of the pyramid, the gene that controls all of this, uh, the genes uh, will be known. Um, that's, as I say, looking into the future, but uh, there are many important mechanisms that need to be known here. Now, the question is this. If we understand the mechanisms, how are we going to help society? The two examples I showed you earlier were examples where you reduce the expression of a native gene in the plant and you get drought tolerance. You reduce a break in the pathway. But if you really want to work on this, you're going to have to use transgenics in the future. And of course, transgenics have been used in the U.S. for a long time, are fairly well accepted. In Europe, there have been more issues, but, but we see that, that in many countries, we see that the acceptance of transgenic plants is increasing um, in part because uh, uh, people see that this can help with the environment. So, yeah, there are some skeptics, as we see in this slide. And um, I should say, though, that uh, genetic engineering of plants has been around a long time. And this example here of this corn cob, this is an example of genetic engineering by Native Americans some 8,000 years ago. So what you see here is a full-grown corn cob. The original plant that this was derived from is the teosinte plant shown up here. And Native Americans, through genetic engineering, got from here down to the corn cob. And today we know that the major difference between this teosinte and the corn cob are five genes, selection of five genes. And that was genetic engineering. The research today that has shown this is work of John Dobley and others in Madison, Wisconsin, and elsewhere. So we see that genetic engineering has been around for a long time, selection of genes for improved crop traits, whether it's a big corn cob, whether it's a larger tomato, or uh, many other examples. So there is work also in drought tolerance in terms of overexpressing genes. And I want to show you an example here from work that's ongoing in China uh, at Huazong uh, Agriculture University. In this case, a field screen was done for genes uh, that transcription factors that might improve drought tolerance. And you can see here in the field trial, this is the more drought tolerant uh, transgenic plant compared to the wild type. A slight difference, but an improvement in drought tolerance. Uh, another example is work from a small biotech company here in California, Mendel Biotechnology that has screened Arabidopsis. That's our lab plant, our lab uh, Drosophila, or lab rat, if you will. And they use these genes and then work with Monsanto to see if they could improve drought tolerance in corn. And this is also from a recent publication. You see here the wild type and the corn overexpressing this one transcription factor. So there are advances in this field of engineering improved drought tolerance. So the question is, are we there yet? Are we there? This looks great. Of course, there are field trials going on now. This is not yet in the marketplace. There's a lot of testing that has to be done. And I would venture that this is the beginning. We're at the beginning. If you think of the microelectronics revolution, we're roughly at the stage when the first transistor radios came out. Of course, you could say we're done, but we're not at the integrated circuits yet. We're, we're uh, still working on these type of improvements. 
But how, why do I think that there is room for improvement? Uh, we have here drought tolerance that might give us 5% improvement of yield. I'll give you an example. Take a plant seed. If you take a plant seed, that's a life form. There's an embryonic plant in that seed if you slice it open. And you can store a seed. It's desiccated. It has to be dry. It's actually drought-tolerant life. You can store that seed for 10, maybe 20, or even more years. You add water to it, and it comes to life. It continues to grow. So the seed is arrested in growth. It's drought-tolerant. And the hormone that causes that seed to be tolerant to drought is ABA. And the receptors are the same, as we know now, work that will be published. So... um, Uh, So this is just a cross-section of a seed here. If you slice through a seed, there's a little plant with a root and two leaves. And and it's stored at room temperature. We're not talking about cryoprotection. It's stored at room temperature for 20 or or decades. And all you have to do is add water. So you can maintain life during a drought and then restart it up again. So there's a lot that we have to learn scientifically. And uh, unfortunately, we can't take forever to make these discoveries because... They are relevant for our future. I want to talk about another subject uh, uh, during this talk, namely heat stress. Heat stress and drought stress uh, go very close together. This is from recent studies in science. uh, And uh, the the, uh, upshot of these studies are that higher temperatures are seen as reducing the global harvests because heat stress does disrupt plant growth. And I want to tell you about some recent research in my laboratory that links what we've talked about today to heat stress. And that's the following. We learned that the hormone ABA closes the stomatal pores. Interestingly, these stomatal pores also respond to atmospheric CO2 and to CO2 inside the leaf. And elevated CO2 reduces stomatal apertures. Maybe not as strong as here, but they do close the stomata. So we already have 40% higher CO2 in the atmosphere today than pre-industrial revolution. So already plants are narrowing their apertures. And there's a number of global effects of this uh, CO2 regulation of this stomatal apertures. For one thing, increased CO2 reduces stomatal opening in plants on a global level to different degrees in different plants. That will reduce the ability of CO2 to flow into the leaves in the plants. Also, there's been a study that proposes that there's a reduced uh, continental freshwater runoff, reduced also precipitation, and that that can be brought, that that's uh, linked to this reduced uh, transpiration or evaporation of water from plants. Now, another very important subject here is if you reduce the stomatal apertures of leaves, you reduce water evaporation. Not all a bad thing, but if your plant is experience is heat sensitive, then the temperature of the leaf will increase further because plant leaves can cool themselves by evaporation, by perspiration. We cool ourselves, and that's how plants can cool the leaves. So this is actually enhancing the heat stress already induced by global warming. And um, there's also a theory that elevated CO2 might enhance the water use efficiency of plants. That would be a good thing. But we don't know the CO2 sensors. We don't know the mechanisms, how plants respond to CO2. 
In my lab, in the last few years, we've been characterizing the genes that cause elevated CO2 to reduce their apertures. And we've published a few of these, some of these in collaborations, last year a paper in Nature, and so on. And we've discovered several mechanisms. But the CO2 binding proteins, the CO, if you will, sensors that respond to CO2 are unknown and haven't come out of genetic screens. So we used a genomic approach and probed many different CO2 binding proteins, looking at thousands of genes that are expressed in the guard cells and, and other leaf cells. And then, through mutagenesis, have found two genes that together are CO2 binding proteins, but that play an important role in this response. So here's some actual data. What you're seeing here is the way a wild-type plant responds. If you elevate CO2, the stomata close. If you reduce CO2, they open. In this double mutant, in these CO2 binding proteins, the response is very weak. There is a background. Maybe we have to make a triple mutant, what we call in the lab. But you can see this greatly reduced response to CO2. Of course, we've done a lot of other research around this. One of the things that we've done is if we take these CO2 binding proteins and with the right promoters overexpress them in the right tissues, we can greatly enhance the water use efficiency of the plants. So we're in enhancing the ability of the plant to respond to, glo to our atmospheric CO2 increase. These are the first four transgenic plants we looked at in the laboratory, and the average increase in water use efficiency was 44%. So we're kind of excited. We haven't even tried hard and already boosted water use efficiency in our Arabidopsis plants by about 44%. So there's much to be discovered. There's, uh, uh, there is a lot of potential at this time to work on different aspects of drought tolerance and water use efficiency of plants. I will uh, leave you with a quote here from Norman Borlaug. He is known as the father of the Green Revolution and the 1970 uh, Peace Nobel Laureate. And in a publication in 2000, uh, uh, Norman Borlaug wrote, it took some 10,000 years to expand food production to the current level of about 5 billion tons per year. By 2025, we will have to nearly double current production again, and it has been increasing since 2000, which is good. This increase cannot be accomplished unless farmers across the world have access to many tools, including new biotechnological breakthroughs that can increase the yields, dependability, and nutritional quality of our basic food crops. Um, and so, uh, uh, just to finish up, yes, we need many different approaches. And uh, so, thank you very much for your attention. My pleasure now to introduce uh, the second uh, major speaker today, who's uh, Timothy Brick. He's the chair of the Metropolitan Water District. He's been on the board for uh, 24 years and has vast experience in this area, and we're very delighted to have him and to hear his uh, presentation this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here today to um, address this very important topic of water and energy. Uh, apropos of the last discussion, I wanted to call to your attention a comment made by the new Secretary of Energy, Stephen Chu, who in an article and interview in the Los Angeles Times on February 4th said that uh, he fears that the effects of climate change are so great that California may be looking at a prospect in which agriculture is wiped out by the end of the century. And he added, and the cities will have a very hard time too. 
Um, so, you know, there's, there's different things going on here that are very ominous and, and very important for people to really focus on um, if we are really going to achieve sustainability uh, for the future of Southern California. I want to talk today about uh, the relationship between water and energy in California and then talk some about energy management at water agencies and uh, how it's being viewed at this time. Talk specifically about the Metropolitan Water District and our energy management program and what are some steps for the future that need to be looked at. California is, uh, has an immense uh, gross domestic pro product uh, that's 11.5% uh, of the U.S. gross domestic product. Um, the population exceeds 37.4 million people, and we're adding uh, every year a substantial number of new residents, largely ingrown, largely coming from um, our children and grandchildren. And uh, while we now have a population of 37.4, it's expected that by 2040 we will have a population of 54 million people. Southern California is expected to rise rapidly as well in conjunction with that. And that population stress is, is putting stress on water resources. This is kind of the water situation today, this year. Um, not long term, but this year, in which we find on the Los Angeles Aqueduct um, the lowest deliveries on record. On the Colorado River, we hope it's coming out of a drought, but there's been eight years of, of, uh, of drought. It looks like it's about average this year, and it was a little over average last year, so we hope it's coming out of a drought, but the Colorado River Aqueduct and the Colorado River are really major sources of supply for Southern California and very critical. And then also, locally, the uh, precipitation has been very low in the last three years all throughout Southern California. Um, although I understand San Diego is at about an average this year. So, um, but don't be deceived, actually, statewide by the water picture by a few days of rain because January was very dry, among the driest years on record. And it'll be very difficult to make up for that. Uh, this is compounded by fishery conflicts, which have really caused cutbacks in the amount of pumping of water in the state of California, particularly from the state water system. So, so much so that the director of the Department of Water Resources of the state of California says we may be at the start, at the start, mind you, of the worst California drought in recent history. Energy and water are really inextricably linked. A lot of people have missed the connection between the two, and yet it's vital. It's vital uh, as to new water sources, it's vital as to the treatment of water, it's vital to um, energy. And uh, when we talk about the, the big stress on uh, managing uh, carbon emissions and other things like that, um, water is the way that uh, the medium through which many of the effects of climate change are going to be felt upon the population. Um, water use consumes enormous amounts of electricity. And California is a state in which two-thirds of we kind of have an imbalance in resources here. Two-thirds of the rainfall falls in Northern California. Two-thirds of the population is in Southern California. This shows you the water-related energy use in California. And uh, this is as a percentage of uh, electrical production, gigawatt hours, in uh, the year 2006. And you'll see that of uh, the total electric uh, consumption in California, uh, water-related use is about 19% of that. And if you break that out further, 
Um, if you look at that uh, bar on the right, you'll see that about 15.5% of that is coming from um, the end use. So it's the treatment of water and heating of water particularly. So saving, conserving heated water is particularly important in terms of water conservation as well as energy conservation. Now, if you look at the 3.1%, that's the state water project. And um, the 0.4% is uh, Metropolitan Water District itself. But before you let us off the hook, in terms of being a major electricity user in the state of California, you should know that of the 3.1%, Metropolitan Water District represents about 70 to 75% of that as well in you know, water services that, that we're purchasing from the state water project. So Southern California basically is uh, using about 3.5% of the electricity in the state of California. This is uh, for, for water specifically. Um, this is the, the big picture of... Uh, of energy production in California and where it's coming from, what kind of sources. And you can see that um, there, the nuclear is 14.8. A large proportion is coming from natural gas. But a significant amount is coming from coal resources as well, often outside the state of California. And there are hydro resources and some renewable resources. The renewable level has remained remarkably the same, although there are commitments by the electric utilities to substantially increase the production of and, and purchase of renewable resources in the future. With regard to greenhouse gas emissions, it's important to note from that last chart that more than 60% of the electricity used in the state is coming from fossil fuel con combustion. And that electricity generation is contributing 23% of the global greenhouse gas emissions in California. Um, more than 50% of these come from increased, from uh, imported power coming from outside the state of California, from coal plants in the southwest and in Utah. Now, California's grand plan to reduce global greenhouse gases was expressed in AB 32, a bill by Assemblywoman, then Assemblywoman, now State Senator Fran Pavley, which sets a goal of reducing statewide greenhouse gas emissions to 1990 levels by 2020. So this is really what um, all of the energy users in California have, have set. You know, this is the standard for all of the energy users in California is to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions back to 1990. Let me tell you a little bit about Metropolitan Water District to kind of set the context for uh, our use. And we represent uh, six counties in Southern California. Um, all the way from Ventura to the Mexican border along the coastal plain of Southern California. The San Diego County La uh, Water Agency is our, our largest customer in terms of sales. Los Angeles is our largest customer in terms of size. The, um, we uh, serve um, almost 19 million people at this point, so more than half the population of the state of California with a massive economy, a rapidly growing population, 220,000 a year, and we're providing um, somewhat more than half of the water resources for Southern California. This is where Southern California gets its water, and we showed you a little bit of that before. You'll see that um, the Los Angeles Aqueduct, which is owned and operated by the city of Los Angeles, comes from the eastern Sierra Nevadas. It was the first system developed in 1913 to import water into Southern California. 
The Colorado River Aqueduct was developed by the Metropolitan Water District. We were formed to develop the Colorado River Aqueduct and to bring the Colorado River into the coastal plain of Southern California. And we did that during the 30s and uh, began delivering water in 1941. Um, the State Water Project came in during the 60s and began delivering water in 1970. And the Metropolitan Water District is the distributor of all of the water for the State Water Project. This is the mix. About 45% of the water is coming from local resources, surprisingly. I bet a lot of people would be surprised at that figure. 45% of the water resources in Southern California are local. Now, there's a, there's a little bit of fudging in there because the Los Angeles Aqueduct is considered a local resource, but anyway. Um, <laughs> it's not exactly local, but the Eastern Sierras, they, they don't think it's local, but anyway. Um, and then the State Water Project is about 36% with the Colorado River, and that's down, is 19%. That's down from recent years in which the Colorado River Aqueduct historically has provided more water than the State Water Project. This is metropolitan system throughout Southern California. We have uh, 242 miles of uh, aqueducts. We have lots of pipelines crisscrossing the area in order to deliver water to 26 member agencies, 14 cities and 12 regional water agencies. We have seven major pumping stations, five treatment plants, which are among the largest in the world. All five of them are in the top 10 in the world. And uh, we have 16 hydroelectric plants of our own. Now, energy management is extremely important to water agencies and is be increasingly being recognized as the pivotal uh, planning parameter for water agencies. Uh, cost is one of the reasons the wildly spiking prices of recent years have created a tremendous amount of economic instability and have made it very difficult for us. The, uh, there's another element, which is that new water treatment technologies, in fact, are more energy intensive. And also, um, we need to address the greenhouse gas emissions related to energy generation. Another factor that isn't on the chart is that through our planning for water supplies in the future, we can actually affect how we use energy by emphasizing the less energy intensive uses. So all of these are very important factors that really come into uh, consideration in terms of the planning in the future of water in Southern California. I referred to the electric price volatility, and you can see how the prices have been spiking and what the uh, prognosis for the future is in terms of the price of electricity. Um, since water users are using 19% of the electricity in the state, this is clearly a major factor um, for, us, for, us, for us all. It's also important to realize that many of the new treatment technologies that are coming in uh, and in order to improve the quality of drinking water, which I would contend is, is the highest in the world in Southern California, but we're working hard to improve that technology. And those um, technologies um, are generally energy intensive. They require more energy use than previous methods that have been used. And probably, um, well, the biggest one right now that is now being rolled out throughout Southern California in recent years is the introduction of ozone as a treatment technology, which is a, a billion-dollar um, project for Southern California and is being put in at all five of our treatment plants and is a significant uh, increase in the amount of energy that is used. There are other uh, treatment technologies with membrane technology and ultraviolet disinfection and other steps like that, which also are energy-intensive. And this chart will give you some sense of uh, how much uh, of an increase 
um, in energy consumption and cost will come from the introduction of those technologies. Um, you can see here that as you go across the chart, conventional treatment doesn't use a lot of energy. Um, ultraviolet is really just used in specialized applications at this time. Ozone is being widely introduced throughout Southern California, as I referred to, and you can see the significant increase, 200% increase in the amount of electricity used for treating water with the addition of ozone. And then microfiltration and reverse osmosis are used more in recycling and desalination applications. And you can see particularly reverse osmosis, which is kind of the, the standard for both recycling and desal applications, is a, a very large energy user. Also, in terms of planning for uh, water resources for the future, you can see how the energy equation is very important to our planning. And so on the left, you see the state water project. Actually, this chart is, is in uh, uh, cubic meters, which is probably uh, a language that most of you don't speak. Um, but uh, it'll give you a sense of the relative energy consumption associated with these various energy sources. The state water project using 2.6, the Colorado River aqueduct using substantially less, you know, uh, and, and recycled water, actually not very much energy consumption, but of course the best solution really is to maximize the efficiency of water use through conservation, which generally requires little or no energy. This is how Southern California's planning uh, scenario has changed radically in the last 20 years. In the early 90s, you can see there was a heavy reliance on the Colorado River Aqueduct, CRA, and the State Water Project, the imported water sources. And um, through the drought, the last drought in the 90s, the drought that occurred from 1988 to 1992, um, we came to the realization that we really had to diversify our planting sources and move away from the imported sources, which were increasingly less reliable. And so, as you can see from this chart, this, this, these two charts show the change that has occurred. So we now place much less reliance in the future on the Colorado River Aqueduct and the State Water Project. They remain important sources for the future, but we're going to be using them less. And instead, we've increased the amount of local resources, conservation, and storage and transfer programs. The, the new treatment technologies that I talked about are important also to consider in that they dramatically increase annual energy costs, as well as the dependence upon, um, we, they, they make us more dependent upon reliable energy sources and more committed, really, to develop renewable energy sources in order to provide a stability for the water industry. Um, this is really driving water agencies to energy management options that will reduce costs and maintain water quality compliance. So both of those elements are absolutely critical. This is um, what our energy cost picture looks like, and you can see from this that we're spending about $250 million a year on, on energy purchases. And of that, the vast majority of it is for pumping water from Northern California into Southern California in the State Water Project, $213.5 million of that and a relatively smaller amount on the Colorado River Aqueduct, actually the treatment of water is a relatively small part of it. It's that blue slice there, and that includes all of our facilities, it includes all of the treatment plants and the office building and everything. So even though I said that you know, ozone was gonna double the treatment, you can see that that's a relatively small part of the overall water picture and that it's really the pumping of water 
that is, that is really causing the, the high energy uh, uh, usage. Um, as we look to energy management programs and styling the right approach to the future, we're evaluating very carefully the impacts of climate change and legislation with regard to greenhouse gas emissions and looking at how we can uh, avoid risks coming in the future and have a more reliable system so that we're not going to be dependent upon spikes in energy prices or unreliability of energy sources and such like that. And cost control is a key factor for us as well. So our goal really is to design, construct, and operate facilities in an energy-efficient, cost-effective, and sustainable manner. And the strategies you see here reduce global greenhouse gas emissions, improve energy efficiency and energy conservation, manage power resources in the most cost-effective manner, and implement renewable energy projects. In fact, I would say that the water agencies need to be the leaders in implementing renewable energy uh, solutions, uh, not only to show um, a model for the public, but also to improve the reliability of water systems for the future and to really take sustainability seriously. Now, I told you about the 1990 goal that has been set for the year 2020, and kind of by accident, Metropolitan's in really good shape. <laughs> it just happened that in the year 1990, uh, we used a lot of state water project water, and so our, our greenhouse gas emissions, as you can see, were enormous that year. And uh, we've done really well since then because of dedicated leadership of the board, of course. <laughs> <clears throat> but uh, you, you can see that, you know, in terms of meeting that goal, that's not a challenge for us. But there are other factors that we want to include in order to improve reliability and to be uh, good public citizens. I really think that the, the water industry uh, needs to go green. Blue is green and green is blue. So uh, we do things like to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions. We uh, have put a big stress on adding hybrid vehicles in our fleet, uh, improving boiler operations and efficiency at administra uh, administration buildings. Um, our building has won models for uh, energy efficiency, and we work very closely with all of the utilities that, that were in their service territory in order to improve efficiency and to deal with conservation. And um, also very importantly is that uh, through our educational programs and through all of our programs, really, we're working hard to promote energy and sustainability awareness. Um, sustainability has become a very active theme. With regard to managing power sources, Metropolitan benefits from um, our small hydro uh, plants. We have 16 small hydro plants. And we also get uh, large hydro, as a matter of fact, from Hoover Dam and from Parker Dam on the Colorado River which uh, contribute a large part of the energy that we use. So um, a large part, as you can see from this, is really coming from renewable generation. And you can see how the energy use has changed over the years. The small hydro is the green line, and uh, we've improved. So, you know, we began in the 19, about 1980 and have substantially expanded our small hydro resources and probably will continue to do so in the near future. And at the bottom, you can see the orange line is what our treatment plants are using in energy. So you can see that just our small hydro plants on our system, which are basically designed to recapture head or to recapture the potential energy in the water as it falls on the system, um, substantially are um, overshadowed um, by the, uh, the amount that we get from small hydro. That is, the treatment plants are more than served by just the, our own production of small hydro. 
And here we see also the consumption in renewable generation. We're exploring, we, we have these uh, 16 small hydro systems throughout our system. We're now looking, most of them were planned in the 80s based on assumptions of energy costs and such and reliability in the 80s. So we're now going in again and looking at the system again to see where else we can extract more energy from our system by capturing that falling water, basically. And our small hydro plants are located throughout Southern California, really, up at Castaic Lake in the west there, and then all through the system coming down even into uh, San Diego County. They're producing uh, 523,000 megawatt hours a year and uh, $26 million in revenue, which we, we're selling this power to uh, local utilities in Southern California. We're making a move towards solar as well. We have uh, a one megawatt plant coming in at Skinner, um, our major treatment plant, uh, and uh, it, uh, we're also looking at uh, rolling out about 15 megawatts more in the near future. We estimate a capital cost of eight to $10 million for, for the, uh, per megawatt for the uh, solar development. And uh, we're going to expect on the Skinner plant that we're going to receive a significant rebate through the California uh, Solar Initiative. We're um, also proceeding on some of our other plants and are expanding our solar operation uh, as we go. Wind power, we own a lot of land in the desert and are evaluating the effectiveness of wind power um, and are looking carefully at the cost and reliability factors involved with it and undertaking studies in order to determine whether we can uh, um, develop substantial wind power resources as well. Um, the big issues that are affecting us as we look to the future with regard to the development of renewables include cost, uh, transmission capacity, and getting it where we need it, and the reliability of the system. And, all, and you know, a lot of that deals with the intermittent and variable nature of solar uh, photovoltaic and wind energy. And we're looking very carefully at technology advances. This is um, a view of um, our estimate of uh, what are likely to be the costs of the development of the various renewable options as we look across. And we see that uh, you know, some are obviously more advantageous than others. Um, and um, hopefully we can work for the reduction of the costs of the renewable resources uh, um, in order to meet the global greenhouse uh, commitment as well as to um, go green, truly grow green. So the next steps for Metropolitan in terms of energy management are to really continue and enhance our energy efficiency and conservation programs. Um, and that's really probably the most important thing we can do for effective ma energy management. And then to continue the implementation of cost-effective renewable energy projects such as the solar photovoltaic systems and the hydroelectric power plant expansion and wind energy as well. And also, we're going to develop board policies to address the reduction of global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.